Well, take your Bibles, and if they're not open, to turn to uh, 1 Corinthians 13, and we're continuing our study in 1 Corinthians 13. Um, here's where we are in our line-by-line study. If you're listening for the first time online, or if you haven't been here in a while, just trying to catch up, it's really important that we understand uh, that we build on this teaching and build week for week, and it kind of all fits together. And so if you miss out a little bit, it might be maybe difficult to jump on board right in the middle. And so let me give you a gist of what we're going on, what's happening. In this young church, and through this young church really, the gospel is, be, is rescuing people from their sin. It's, it, it's really awesome. I'm sure uh, it would be really awesome to live during that time. It's a unique time, and, and the gospel is really new uh, to many folks in this part of the world. And so the gospel, they're going out and they're preaching the gospel, and it's rescuing people from their sin, and the sin, and the church is growing. It's growing spiritually, and it's also growing numerically. But in the process of growth, both physical and numerical, um, the, physically, the numerically, but also spiritually, I mean, um, when you grow to be more like Jesus, and when you add more people from different cultures and backgrounds, there can be bumps along the way, right? There can be difficult things. And so one of those bumps that they have run into in this local church is doesn't feel so much like a, a speed bump, but it feels more like a roadblock in a way. And that roadblock, roadblock is the issue of pride. You know, we all tend to think of ourselves more highly than we ought to. As a matter of fact, we all just tend to, th- uh, tend to think of ourselves just way too much, period. For some people that looks like they think they're God's gift to mankind, and yet for others, they have the Eeyore complex, and they're constantly think about themselves in a negative fashion. Both are inappropriate. Either way, preoccupation with yourself is that ramp to conflict. And so Paul is dealing with the issues of pride within this local church, and there are a variety of issues that he deals with Um, under that subject of pride, we we started at the very beginning and we saw about how there was that conflict. Hey, I'm of Apollos and I'm of this and that and so on and so forth. But in chapters 12 through chapter 14, he deals with pride and the subject of spiritual gifts. Now, so far in this subject, chapters 12, here's where we are. We've dealt with chapter 12. We looked at the very beginning of chapter 12 in the first three verses that the greatest miracle is that miracle of personal redemption. Isn't it a wonder that God would rescue us from our sin? Praise God that he does that. And that's really the greatest miracle. More so than the miraculous gifts that they have seen and experienced. And he opens up chapter 12 this way because many in the church, not the whole church, but many... All right, we're arrogant with our gifts. I'm amazing. Look at me. God used me to heal somebody. But you just have the gift of hospitality, so go make me a sandwich. Then others with that Eeyore complex, they say, woe is me. God hates me. I got gypped. I'm not even worthy enough to make a sandwich. And so God has Paul remind them of the greater miracle of redemption in comparison to any spiritual gift, no matter how flashy that it might seem. Then what God does is he affirms that the gifts are good. He says that they should be used for the common good. 
that there are a variety of gifts that are given. We, had, we took a, a pause in our life groups and we were able to take a, life, uh, a spiritual gifts test in, in uh, inventory intentionally. I hope that you did that. Um, if you weren't in that life group, there was copies of that. We had copies in the, uh, of that in the back. And hopefully that was uh, for you just, just kind of a reminder. It was a fun reminder to say, oh, yeah, maybe this is where I'm gifted and, and help reveal that. We also learned that we need every gift in the body of Christ. We need those with the gift of hospitality. We need those who teach. We need those with discernment. We need all, all of these gifts together because it makes for a healthy, strong, vibrant body. We also know that every believer has been gifted. Every one of us has at least one gift. And we know that the Holy Spirit gives these gifts, not based on what is deserved or what is earned, but simply as God the Holy Spirit sees fit. After all, he's God and we are not. And so all of that is intentional to remind us this instruction is given because many in the church were arrogant. And last week we looked um, or started to look at chapter 13. And we spent most of our time in verses 1 through verse number 7. He transitions at the end of chapter 12 by saying this, but earnestly desire the higher gifts. We'll get to that phrase next week, as I mentioned. And I will still show you a still more excellent way. The more excellent way is the way of what? Love. It's the way of love. Not the way of arrogance or self-exaltation, but love. So right in stride, Paul confronts the local church with what a redeemed life, that is a life with a new heart, if you have a new heart, what it looks like. It was a confrontation to call them to repentance. And we as a church were called to repentance last week if we have been filled with arrogance in our lives. It's a love that looks like verses 4 through 7. You know what verses 4 through 7 is? It's an autobiography of Jesus. It's what Jesus looks like. It's who Jesus is. And then in chapter, in chapter 13, I quickly mentioned verses 8 through verse 13. And so that's where we want to go back to today, and we want to talk about that this morning. I said that if I could wrap up verses 8 through 12, like in a helicopter view, which, which I did, it would, be, it, would, it would be the general thought would be that good things come and go, like these gifts, but that love, verse 13, love never goes away. It always remains. It's the greatest thing. It's the most superior thing. And so we're going to look at that today in a a message I've entitled, The Superior and the Perfect, like you see up there on the screen. Now, it's essential, so let's get right into it. It's essential in our study to understand the whole context together, and that's why I just went over it, right? Furthermore, it's not appropriate for us to just pull a verse out of context, and, and then really what's, what we can do then is we can really make the verse mean whatever we want it to mean. And so one of the dangers is, um, or, or rather, we need to, must consider the verse within the context to understand the meaning and the intent. So one of my, one of my uh, favorite verses as a kid, what I thought was hilarious, was the verse in, it's one of the minor prophets, I can't even remember the, the reference now, one of the minor prophets, it says that the prophet the prophet uh, took the roll and he threw it across, he threw the roll. And so as a kid, I always thought that food fights were biblical because he threw the roll. So what I did was, is I took a, vo- a verse out of context and I made it to mean something it didn't mean at all. Make sense? Now we could do that specifically with one verse, and we're going to get to that verse here, 
in just a little bit, we could do that with one verse. And we don't want to do that this morning. So we need to understand it within its context. And so by way of introduction, I walk through the context of the spiritual gifts here. Because it's really, it's very crucial for us to understand verses 8 through verse 13. First, what I want to do is give our attention to understanding that love is superior. At the end, at the beginning of verse 8, we read, love never ends. And if you remember last week, verses 4 through verse 7, or really verse 4 through verse 8, is not some sort of checklist where we get to kind of print it out or put it, you know, like some sort of reminder thing on our cell phones, and then every day we check it off, and then, hey, we're good with God. It's not some sort of behavioral checklist to earn or to keep favor with God. Rather, what Paul's intent was, or is, it's a description of what a redeemed life looks like. If you are a believer, then necessarily what's going to happen in your life is it's going to look like love. There's no question about it. And what that looks like is all of those things that are said in verses 4 through verse 7. Ironically, the description ends with the phrase, love never ends. But all of those things in there, if you have met Jesus, if you are a believer, I'm not saying you're going to do it perfectly. The scripture doesn't say you're going to do it perfectly or that you'll never be unloving. But you will be different. There will be a love. Why? Because if you've experienced the love of Jesus, it necessarily changes who you are. You have a new heart. And so you're going to be, you're going to reflect and act more like Jesus, which is his autobiography really in verses 4 through verse 7. Then we read this. So love is superior. That's his whole point in all of this. You're fighting, love is superior. Then we read in verse 8 this. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. Maybe your translations, uh, your, your tra- it's translated differently um, in different places, but perhaps your translation uses something different, but that's essentially what it means. And as for knowledge, it will pass away. What's important for us to understand in context, okay, so in other words, why would Paul, we're talking about spiritual gifts, so it makes sense that he would talk about spiritual gifts, right, in the context. But why would he, when he's talking about love, all of a sudden right in the middle here say, prophecies, prophecies, you're gonna, they're going to go away, tang- tongues are going to cease, and then, now, why would he say that? What's the point? His point in context is he's talking about the more excellent way, that is the way of love, and it's more excellent because it never ends like prophecy, tongues, and knowledge. That's his point in bringing that up. Hey, you guys are fighting about these gifts. Pause button. Prophecy, tongues, and knowledge, they're going to be gone someday. What are you fighting about? Why are we fighting over these? Stop it. And then we get to verse 9. So that's the context. And then we get to verse 9 through verse 12. Let me read those again. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. Now, when I was a child, I spoke as a child. I thought as a child, and I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now, we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now, I know in part, but then I shall know 
shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Okay, now building on the context of verse 8, verses 9 and verse 10 add to the argument of superiority of love or why love is more excellent. Excellent. Okay, what is that argument? We know that now that life is, in verse uh, 9 through 12 here, that the now, everything is partial. What it prophesied now is partial, he says. He's writing during his time. What's partial? Um, this gifts of tongues is partial. It's, this stuff is just all partial. And because they're partial, they're going to pass away. That's why love is superior. Verse 11 uses the infant and the adult contrast to say just like childhood didn't last, neither do these giftings. The knowledge we now we have now is nothing like what it will be like when we see Jesus face to face in verse number 12. Again, the point is for the superiority of love. It doesn't end. So, don't think, Corinthian church, and by application us, don't think that your spiritual gifting is what makes you spiritual. You actually have been very arrogant when you should be characterized by love. You're fighting. You're not loving. And then verse 13 drives home the whole context. Love never ends, right? Love. The greatest of these is love. And I believe the point of the text is all about the superiority of love contrasted to their arrogance. The point of the text is not specifically about details or details dealing with giftings. That's not his point. My believer friends, if you've ever experienced this love of Jesus through the gift of faith, that has given you a new heart. You have a new heart that's, that's described here. You're, you're loving, just like it talks about here in this context in verse 4. Love is patient and it's kind. It does not envy. It's not, it's not arrogant. You're not going to be perfect, yes, but... Man, you're going to be changed. And that's what Paul wants this church to see. Now, I could honestly just, and I, I think I could just stop there and go right on to chapter 14 and verse 1. I think that's his whole point. Knock it off. Quit beating a bunch of knuckleheads. Love each other. Boom. Chapter 14, let's talk about prophecy in tongues. What does love look like? when it's applied to the gifts in the local church and how we work it out. This is what it looks like. Blah, blah, he sets all these things, and then he gets to the very end of chapter 14, and he says, let everything be done decently in order. Boom. Knock it off. But I don't think that would be the most <laughs> pastorally responsible thing to do at this point. The reason is, is because Paul does mention some things, specifically verse 10, that do raise questions. Verse 10 is one of those little things that throws us into us. Remember I told you, uh, I told you like weeks ago when we, when we started this, I said, man, I, this is going to be some really difficult stuff to get through. Well, here we go. This is one of these messages where if you have rotten tomatoes, some of you might have even brought them, please don't throw them. All right? This is difficult to work through. It's not comfortable. So, but I don't think it would be pastorally responsible to just to just go past verse 10 and not really talk about these things. It doesn't, what's going on here, what I'm talking about, or what I'm going to bring up this morning here in point two in just a second, it doesn't seem to be a question for Corinth because Paul doesn't develop verse 10 here at all. Verse 10 says, when the perfect comes, then the partial will pass away. 
right? Partial will go away. Paul doesn't develop that here. Why? Because that's not his point. His point is he's talking about love. But there are two questions that get asked or get thought about or are emphasized or people write books like thick books on. And that's the question of what is the perfect in verse number 10. So love is superior. That's his whole point. But number two, what is that perfect thing that he's talking about in verse number 10? And if we're able to identify what that thing is, that perfect thing is in verse number 10, then how does that impact or what does that have to do with the giftings? Because it's all in the context. All right? So first of all, what is the perfect? Well, I'm glad that you asked. There are three leading views as to what the perfect is there in verse 10. The first view is this. It's the maturity of believers. Right? That's the, what's the perfect? First view is the maturity of believers. This comes directly from the word perfect. All right? So verse number 10, it says there, uh, but when the perfect comes. So that word perfect. This word perfect can also be translated as mature, grown up, okay, developed, comprehensive. Those are different words how it could be translated. And so, for instance, in the context, remember a couple weeks ago we talked about spiritual gifts, and some people use Ephesians 4 as a list of spiritual gifts. But in the context, if you use that list of Ephesians 4, it says, so Christ himself gave the apostles and the prophets and the evangelists and the pastors and the teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God and become, next word is mature, same word as the word perfect, same exact word, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. So there are some, when they read this verse 10, who think that when a believer is spiritually grown up, and that's what they think about verse 11 where it talks about the child and the adult, they, uh, they think, they take that verse 11 to support this, they think that when you spiritually grow up, that when you get to that point, you don't need gifts of tongues and prophecy. You just don't need them anymore. Why? Because you're spiritually mature now. So that's the perfect thing that comes. Now, honestly, this really isn't a significant view. There's a very few minor, few people who hold it. But nonetheless, it is a view that's out there. Now, what do I think about there? What, what, what's, what do we think about that? First, there's nothing in the context that really points to this view. I don't think verse 11 points to that view. Rather, verse 12 points to our immaturity until we, because it says we don't know fully. Second, just a casual observation of the text logically leads us to this conclusion. I mean, if you think about it, this church is writing to Paul for help precisely because he is mature. And this spiritually mature, Paul says in chapter 14, verse 5, that he speaks in tongues more than any of the Christian believers. So obviously, spiritually mature Paul, whom they're writing to ask how do we deal with this? What do we do with this? All right, if that was the case, they wouldn't have written to Paul who speaks in tongues more than any of them. It just doesn't make sense. But the next two views are really the most prominent views, right? And these are the two views you probably have heard. 
And I'm guessing that most of you hold to one of these two views if you hold to anything or if you've thought about it. The second view is this idea of that the perfect is the completion of the Scriptures. The completion of the Scriptures, meaning the Bibles that you have there in your hands or on your devices. All right. This view holds that when God had finished or had compiled, had all the whole, as Peter talks about, the old men of old that wrote the scriptures, when he finished having the Bible written, then specifically any of the gifts, specifically tongues and prophecy, they would no longer be needed because the Bible was completed. Logically, that makes sense, right? I think it makes sense. I don't need the gift. If tongues, as we talked about a few weeks back, if a few weeks weeks back, if tongues is the gift of a foreign language, and we have the completion of something that's written down and can be translated from word to word, that makes sense. We don't need we don't need tongues any longer. If a prophecy is like in the Old Testament, where you like spontaneously get some sort of word from the Lord that you have to share, well, that means what? That means if you can still get prophecy, that means then the Bible really isn't complete. But we have the completed word of God. Why do we have the completed word of God? Because Revelation says at the end that you can't add or take away from this. If you do, then all the plagues of the book will be upon you. Right? So it's got to be the scriptures is what one camp says. Okay? Where, where, does, where else does this word, well, the word perfect, where else does this come from? The word perfect there? is actually, uh, in the original language, is a gender-neutral word. So it can't refer to people. Because if it was gender-neutral, then it would be masculine or feminine word, but it's gender-neutral. So it can't refer to people. So it can't refer to mature believers. So the people who hold to the maturity, eh, that's out. They're, they don't know what they're talking about. And it doesn't mean Jesus because it's gender-neutral. Now, I know of a good many people who believe that when it says, matter of fact, just this week, I threw it off a pastor friend of mine. I said, hey, what do you think the perfect is? And he said, I think the perfect is the scripture. And I, and I said, you're nuts. I, I did because he's a friend and I can say that to him. But uh, that many good people, and he's a good, he loves Jesus. Many people hold to this view. I, and may, perhaps you do. Do I think you're nuts? No, I'm not going to, I'm not trying, I'm just being funny, okay? You hold your view if you believe that's what the scripture teaches. But I don't believe that's what it could refer to. And here's why. For one, if the completion of scriptures means prophecy, as I said, remember, hey, scriptures we don't need, which logically makes sense. But if it means prophecy, then what do you do with Revelation chapter 11, verse 3, which says this, and I will appoint my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. To me, when I read the scripture, if it says, okay, if, if this means prophecy is done with, then why then is it, why is there prophecy in Revelation? To me, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Maybe to you, you can, re- you can reconcile that. To me, it doesn't make sense. Second, in today's text, verse 12 says that when the perfect comes, it comes in connection with when we see something face to face. One pastor wisely said this, scripture gives a wonderful and reliable picture of God, but it does not allow us to see him face to face. Because verse 12 says we now see dimly. All right? That's why I don't think that it's the scriptures. I don't think it supports it. Logically, it doesn't make sense. 
Now, I know logic's different for different people at times, but that's what I think, all right? Take that for what it's worth. The last notable view is that the perfect refers to the state of affairs as it has to do with the second coming. The state of affairs brought about by the second coming, meaning that the gifts under discussion would cease when Jesus returns, when the glorification of believers occurs, and the eternal state of believers is with, when we're with Jesus forever. Now, why this position? Why, where do people who hold that the perfect means this, where do they get that from? Well, verse 12 says, for now, meaning the present time of the writing of Paul's living, and our present time as well, we only see in a reflection. But then he describes a time of face-to-face, doesn't he? He says there, face-to-face. He talks about dimly, but then there's going to be a time when it's not dim, it's face-to-face. So Paul doesn't develop this, does he? He doesn't say, hey, by the way, what I mean is this. So what does face-to-face mean? I think that it refers to what 1 John 3 is talking about. In verse 2, it says, dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known, but we will know what, when Christ appears. We shall be like him, for we'll, we shall see him as he is. When does that happen? Second coming. Starts that whole process. Then the second part of verse 12 talks about knowing imperfectly right now, but then, in quote, you know, then, quote, he shall, and, and the, uh, another pastor puts it this way, be freed from the misconceptions and abilities to understand. Well, when does that come? Which are part of the present life. Our, right now, we have misconceptions and we have inabilities to understand things, don't we? But there's a day that's coming when we won't. It's the now versus the face-to-face time. When is that? To me, I think that's the second coming. Now, furthermore, these folks who who, uh, talk about the general neutral word, they're perfect. Since we're not talking about people directly, we're we're talking about event, that fits. The imperfect now versus the perfect later makes sense in light of verse 11, right? Imperfect now, in the contrast of childhood and adulthood, that makes sense. Child imperfect, and then you grow up. Someday our bodies are going to be translated. They're going to be perfect, right? Now, perhaps you see this differently. But the second coming seems to hold the most weight, in my opinion, for what the perfect is. And by the way, if you want to, let's go get some coffee. It will just be an excuse to get coffee. We can talk about this if you want. I don't think it's something that we have to fight over or disagree, uh, or we can agree to disagree on. This, it's been, like I said, preparing for this, it's been one of these difficult types of things. And I've got, I've got like 12 books on my desk that have, you know, much learning hath made me mad, it says in the New Testament. I feel some, some days I just had to put, it, put the books away and just like walk away because there's so much. And there's really good men on both sides that see all three of these different viewpoints. To me, the, most, the one that makes the most exegetical sense and logical sense is that it's the affairs of the second coming. Okay? Now, that puts me in a really difficult position, though. And some of you are already ahead of me on this. Well, does that mean? So we've got to talk about that second question. We've got to talk about where that takes us then. In other words, if the affairs of the second coming is the perfect that it's talking about here, 
all right, in, in the text, if, that's, if it's the affairs of the second coming, then doesn't that mean that the gifts of tongues and prophecy and knowledge, because the second coming hasn't happened, right? Doesn't it mean then that those gifts are still functioning today? Is that what you're saying? Well, that's a good question. The answer to that is usually framed within two different groups or two different camps, okay? I know that's really small up there, but I wanted to get it up at the top line. The one camp that you see on the left is the cessationist camp. That's a, law, that's a long word that is rooted out of the word cease. So that's, you get it, right? Those are the folks who think, no, tongues and prophecy and knowledge, since they're all lumped together, but specifically tongues and, no, or tongues and prophecy, those are ceased. They're done away with. We don't need them anymore. All right? Then there's the other camp. That is the non-cessationist camp, or also called the continuationist camp. Same word, basically mean the same thing. Okay, two different words meaning the same thing. So you have the cessationist camp, and you have the continuationist camp. That's typically which one of these two camps, maybe, or you might be like me, which doesn't feel comfortable with both. More on that in a minute. But most people fall into one of these two camps. Right? Now, the continuationist camp does believe that when, in verse 10, that the perfect is, when it talks about the perfect, that it is the second coming. So that's why all of you are immediate, perhaps you were thinking, oh, you think it's the second coming, you're a continuationist. Now hold your horses. That doesn't necessarily mean that I am, or that I espouse that view and everything that it comes with. Uh, or, or, wait a minute, did I get that? I got those two mixed up, didn't I? The, continu- the continuation is, no, no, no. The continuation believes that the perfect is the second coming. Therefore, that the gifts are still under, are still still being used. That doesn't mean that you have to believe that. Secondly, the cessationist camp says that the gift have stopped. Most of these folks that are cessationists believe because they think that the perfect is the scriptures. If the scriptures have come, then it can stop. Is everybody with me? Does that make sense? I lost my place in my notes, and I, hopefully I didn't confuse you. Cessationists, they're done with. Most of those people come from the, Scriptures camp. The perfect is the scriptures camp, most. Non-cessationist, continuationist, perfect is the second coming. So they're still in use today, okay? Those are those, the two major groups. Now, working out of those two camps are four basic groups of people, all right? And this is, these are the questions, this is, we'll start to answer the questions. The first group of people is the Pentecostal charismatic position, all right? By the way, I don't use those as pejoratives, right? I, this, is, this is what they're called, what they call themselves. And this position comes out of the continuationist camp. They believe that the gifts are all intact, every one of them, and that God intends for them to be used proactively, actively today by churches. But some of the gifts, specifically And typically, the debate is around the gift of tongues, and that's what we're going to concentrate on here in just a little bit. Specifically, the gift of tongues, it comes after a second blessing from the Holy Spirit. In other words, you come to Jesus by faith, and yes, you're blessed with the Holy Spirit, but then on, there's this this crisis moment, or there's this second blessing that happens someday in the future. And that's at the point when you become spiritually mature, and that's when you get to, to, to speak in tongues. Okay, that's going to be, I'm going to 
paint broad strokes, but that's what it is generally, right? That's the Pentecostal charismatic camp. Then there's another continuationist camp called the third wave, okay? This is continuation, meaning there was the, first there was the Pentecostals, and then there was the charismatic uh, movement of the 80s, and then right after that, or actually before the 80s, 60s, 70s, 80s there, and then after that comes this third wave. And there's some really good men that I respect and trust that are part of this third wave group. All right, so there was a third wave. It's a nuanced group who differs themselves from the Pentecostals, Pentecostals and Charismatics. And they, they do believe that, all, that God intends to use all the gifts to accompany the gospel. But they, you get all of the Holy Spirit at conversion, that there's not a second blessing. So they've got that going for them because they're right on that. Friends, when you came to faith in Christ, you got all of the Holy Spirit. That doesn't mean you don't quench them at times, but you got all of them. Right? So that's the third wave group. Then there's the third group. That's the stationists. Pretty, you know, that, I've already mentioned that. The certain, certain ones have just ceased altogether. And then fourth, there's a group that doesn't feel comfortable with either of these groups. And that's the open but, ca- they're literally called the open but cautious group. This group believes that, quote, cessationist arguments are unconvincing, but the theology and the practice of Pentecostals, charismatics, and other third-wave people are not entirely convincing either. I think that's a good way to put it. So the million-dollar question is, which group is right? That's the million-dollar question. If you want to read more, you're like, you're not going to answer it? Yes, I am, because I need to be pastorally responsible. But if you want to read about it, there's a book by Zondervan called The Four Views. It's edited by a third-wave guy, Wayne Grudem, actually, whom we respect, very, uh, one of the top scholars of our day. And he's very gracious, and it's four, these four views are, uh, and this is what they call the four views. It's called uh, viewpoints, four different viewpoints by... Um, on the gifts of the Spirit. I'd encourage you to get it and read it. It's, it's good. It's not a hard read. It's only that thick. Uh, but it's one of the ones that I've been reading for this. So which one of these four is correct? Well, you know, each of us has to give an account for God for ourselves, don't we? And so I encourage you to search out the Scriptures. But let me share with you... Um, Again, I don't think it would be pastorally responsible for me to just leave it there. Let me share with you what I believe the Scriptures teaches, but only as in a mirror. I find some tension with each view. I do believe that the Scripture teaches that the perfect is the affairs of the second coming. I don't think that there's any way around that. I think both other views, major views, are, are, I I can't see them being right at all, not exegetically or logically. Like a continuationist would, so I think the second, the, the second coming is the perfect. But I don't think that the general continuationist camp, and specifically their view on the gift of tongues and prophecy, is correct either. I do believe God's word is finalized. I do believe we have all of God's word right here. That it is sufficient. I do believe Revelation says we can't add to it and shouldn't subtract to it. And so I don't feel comfortable with the continuationist camp, on the other hand, either. And so, uh, most people uh, would, would put me in the group open but cautious. Now, open because, by the way, I don't think, and I, I want to make sure that I'm, that I'm being gracious here, nobody in this debate, 
Nobody that I know of thinks that God is not powerful enough to use these gifts if he wanted to today. Everybody that I talk to believes, yeah, God could use somebody to speak in tongues if he wanted to. Now, I'll be on, one time, true story, a friend of mine named Greg, missionary in Tanzania, Africa, coming to visit in Virginia. I go pick him up at the airport. We're friends. We're talking about life. And he says to me, Matt, i got to tell you something that happened. You're not going to believe it. And I said, okay, shoot. He said, I was in a position, I was, I was with somebody, whatever the, the dialect was, this guy didn't know the language, and he started speaking the language. He goes, I was there. He goes, you know how you kind of hear about that? Like, sometimes you hear about that, like, happening, like, people speak in a tongue that they don't know, and, you know, like, on a foreign mission field, he says, I all thought it was hogwash. But I saw it happen with my own eyes, heard it with my own eyes. So I looked at Greg, and I thought, hmm, Interesting. And then we started talking about baseball. So was he lying to me? I don't think he was. He's a good guy. He loves Jesus. I don't think he was putting on. I trust him. So there's, my point is, is that there are good people who believe differently than us. But let me share with you what I believe the scriptures is teaching and what he has for us. So nobody... My point is nobody says, oh, God can't do it. I think God can do it if he wants to. By the way, God can do any miraculous thing that if he wants to. I believe, you know, we've been praying for Al Fenstermaker, right? We've been praying that God would rescue his soul. We've been, he has cancer in three parts of his body. And two weeks ago, they learned, like, miraculously, I think it was a miraculous thing, that the cancer is completely gone from his lungs. How does that happen? He's still got it in a couple other places, but how does that happen? I think only God, I think God does miraculous things. Nobody denies God's power. That's not the issue. The issue is, does God still employ tongues? And that's specifically what it gets down to in prophecy. But most of the debate is around tongues. So, let's talk about it. Look out with me at verse 8. Let's read it again. It says, love never fails, but where there are prophecies, they will what? Okay, make sure love. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will what? Cease. Your translation might say be stilled. Same exact word translated differently. And as for knowledge, it will do what? Pass away. Okay, now, of interest in, in here are these three verbs. The verbs, the first verb and the third verb, cease, there in verse number eight, and pass away. Both of those verbs are written in a passive form, a passive voice. You say, yawn, what does that mean? Okay, the passive voice means that those things, that they will stop someday by a force or an action outside of themselves. The action will act upon them to make them stop. Okay, son, stop tapping your foot. How does he stop tapping his foot? There was a force called the Father who said to him, stop, and he stopped. That's a passive form of the verb. Make sense? Both of these verbs, in other words, something will stop them. So both of these verbs, and if my understanding of the perfect is correct, 
what happens is, is that something acts upon these two things, prophecy and knowledge, acts upon them, a force acts upon them to make them to stop. That is, as I understand it, the affairs of the second coming. That's why I think we read in, in Revelation chapter 11 and verse 3, there's two guys that are going to be prophesying for 1,200, that's three and a half years, for 1,260 days. Why? Because prophecy still, God is still going to use it. It might be, I would use the word paused right now, it might be paused right now, but it's coming back. So, I don't, it's going to end, but I don't think it's going to end until the, the stuff of the second coming happens. Make sense? But the verb used with tongues, the verb stilled, or the verb uh, cease, or the verb, uh, however it's translated, isn't a passive verse, passive voice verse. It's a middle voice verb. You say, again, what does that mean? Well, we don't have that tense really in our English, but it means that there's a force or an action that will come from within itself, or in other words, it will act upon itself. In other words, tongues will be stopped someday by itself. Therefore, I take that to mean, as one pastor put it, he said, I, he goes, like a battery, tongues has a limited energy supply with a limited lifespan. When, it limits, when its limits are reached, its activity automatically ended. Prophecy and knowledge will be stopped by something outside of themselves, but the gift of tongues will stop by itself, end quote. I think that's right on. I think that's a perfect way to, to express the, what the Greek is saying here. It's very interesting that God uses three, two verbs for the one and tongues a different one. Why? I think it's intentional. I think what God is saying is, is that tongues has ceased. Currently, today, has ceased. It was like, it's not like the Energizer where it keeps going and going and going. I think that it ceased. I'm not saying, and you might believe, hey, look, you might believe that it's still going on. Okay, I, we're not going to fight about it. Let's go get some coffee. You might even say, and some people in, a, in my reading, there's a lot of people who, who have said this, said that they, ha, that they speak in tongues per, like privately like it talks about in chapter 14 and, and, and like it's edifying to them. Okay. I don't know what that, I, I don't know. I've never experienced that. I, I, I don't know. You know? But what, I'm, what I believe, the reason why God put this verse and this verb in here is to teach us that tongues has ceased. Now, I think if you look then at verse 9, I think that's why Paul mentions knowledge and prophecy and not tongues. Further, I think that's why Paul paints prophecy in a more favorable light than he does in tongues in chapter 14, which we're going to get to next week. We will get to chapter 14, but when you read it, Paul's not against tongues. He says in verse 5, I speak it more than anybody, but he does seem to, pay, to favor prophecy over tongues. Now, my next argument is pragmatic. I pragmatically don't think that tongues are necessary, necessarily needed because we do have the scriptures. And that's purely a pragmatic argument. If you look at the historic redemptive timeline, this was a new age. The Old Testament pointed to this time when the Holy Spirit would come and would dwell, indwell all believers and things would be quite different than they were before. Logically, to get the gospel out, it makes sense that God would employ the gift of tongues for this time. They didn't have the Bible like we do. 
And so to get the gospel out, they would use, God used tongues. Now, we have our Bibles today, and if it's not in a language, what do we do? We translate it. That's what we simply do. Is we, tra- we learn the dialect, and we tra- my, one of my really good friends, Troy, that's what he does for a living. He, he, he's working on a couple translations. So they find the dialect, they learn it, and then they learn the words and, and all of the different phonetic, phonetic stuff and all that, and then they translate it into that. Why? Because we can, because we have completed God's word here, copy in front of us. So I don't think we need it. That's, again, it's pr- an argument from pragmatics. So as I understand it from this, I don't think that God uses tongues today. I would call myself uh, open but cautious, but more specifically, I would call myself an op- I would call myself a pragmatic cessationalist. I don't think God needs it. We have the completed word of God here. Now, one other thing I uh, thing I view is when they were used, and this is and this really is perhaps an argument from silence. But if you look at it, Acts two ten and nineteen clearly mentions that they used t- speaking in tongues. Again, tongues is foreign languages. And then it mentions it again here to this in, in 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 12 through 14, which is about 40 years after the events of Acts, let's say. No, 40 years after the life of Jesus. Here's what makes me go, hmm. And I know, again, perhaps an argument from science, but I wonder why Paul doesn't address this issue really to any degree anywhere else in the Scripture, especially when he's talking to Timothy. To me, it just makes me go, hmm. Here is Timothy, a young pastor, and perhaps it is because Timothy had a copy or knew of the letter to the Corinthians church. Perhaps that it, that's it. Perhaps it's going to make its way around, and he, he won't need it if he hadn't seen it at this point. And I can, see, I can see that could be the case. I just wonder why such a gift is not mentioned in another context. It's mentioned really at the beginning of the life of the church, but then we get into church history, and I don't even talk about church history. But if you go back as early as Origen and other people, they talk about how, how about tongues wasn't even used any longer. All of that to say, I believe, again, and I could be wrong, that when it gets to verse, these verses, 8 through verse 13, the whole point is that it's talking about love. I don't think Paul's intent is to get into what I just talked about. So why did I? Because there are books upon books about this. There are churches that are differ, that differ over this. That's why we have charismatic and Pentecostal churches. That's why we have churches on the other side or whatever. That's why there's fighting about this. There's all sorts of stuff that goes on about this. And so to be responsible, we need to work through this this morning. I believe when it says the perfect, I believe exegetically and logically it means, it's, I think it's talking about the second coming. Could I be wrong? Yes, I could be. If you differ from me, great, that's fine. This is a life of faith. You have to study yourself to show yourself to be approved workman that needeth not to be ashamed just as much as I do. If that's the case, are you saying, as if you were speaking to me, are you saying that tongues is still in existence? There are two camps. Some say yes and some say no. I tend to be and am of the camp, pragmatic, pragmatic cessationist that says, I'm definitely open. I think God can do it. My buddy Greg said it happened. I don't disagree with him, but I just, maybe he ate Mexican the night before and it didn't sit well and he had a bad dream. I don't know. And I joke only to make light of this, not as if it's, but I, I, I don't think it, like Greg and I are still friends. We're not going to separate over this. 
But I do think that tongues have ceased. I believe exegetically that's what I see here. That's why I think that verb is used. That's why I think just a perusal of the scripture, I think that's what. So I think in that historic redemptive timeline and logical pragmatism, I, I believe that they have ceased. Tongues has ceased. I believe prophecy is not the same as it used to be either. I don't think God gives us new revelation. This word of faith, maybe even some people, this word of faith movement, et cetera, which looks, it looks like a health and wealth gospel, but it also looks like, hey, I, I've got a new revelation from God, so, you know, send me this because I need a new jet. I don't believe that's either, okay? But specifically when it comes to tongues, and that's typically what we talk about here, that's what I believe the scripture teaches. Don't throw your tomatoes. Okay? I'd love to talk about this if you have any questions. But nonetheless, Paul's main objective here, and what I want us to not forget, is that he is trying to direct our hearts towards love. We must use our spiritual giftings, and and brothers and sisters, not just our spiritual giftings, we must have a life that's characterized by this love because we've been changed by it. Don't be... Don't be a, a, don't be an ornery, contrarian type of person. Be a person who's loving. Be a person who looks like, verses 4 through 7, who looks like Jesus. And that's Paul's main point here. And so I hope to challenge you this morning to be a loving person. Let's pray.